Well, let's return to John in the fourth chapter. John chapter 4, Jesus evangelizes the woman at the well. We have thus far worked our way up to verse 26, and I want to concentrate on verses 27 through 43 today, but let's actually back up to verse 15 and make sure that we really have the context. Jesus has engaged this troubled woman in a conversation about life. We probably shouldn't think of her as a young, attractive, flirtatious woman, but a woman who once was a young, attractive, flirtatious woman. Her beauty has not aged well through five marriages and a sixth lover. Her known promiscuity drove her to the well at an odd hour of the day when polite young wives had long since abandoned the local gathering site. And Jesus has told this thirsty woman of a source of water that will slake her thirst forever, a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And she is immediately intrigued, and in verse 15 she exclaims, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. And I wonder if we experience this response, whether we would immediately pressure her to pray the sinner's prayer. If we were peddlers of the prosperity gospel, we would push her to join the church and experience all of God's blessings and don't forget to tithe. But Jesus knows that her heart is black with sin, and she needed to deal with her defining sin. Of course, we are all sinners, but oftentimes people have this one great, defining, glaring sin that they just clutch onto with all their might. And that sin actually prevents them from coming to Christ. I've had people tell me their addiction to pornography or alcoholism or pride or materialism just held them back from coming to Christ. Well, Jesus wisely does not respond to her request for the water of life. Rather, in verse 16, Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman's defining sin was marital promiscuity and now immorality, and Jesus just models for us what true evangelism looks like. You deal specifically with that person's sin. Now, Jesus' dialogue will continue through two more issues. We looked at these last week. First of all, Jesus and the woman discussed the rightful place of worship. Samaritans worshipped at Mount Gerizim, and the Jews worshipped the temple in Jerusalem. But Jesus says neither of those two locations will be the permanent place of worship. Rather, in verse 23, Jesus exclaims, true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. Would you notice his emphasis not only on the need for the Spirit, the Spirit was given in abundance at Pentecost, of course, but also the need for truth. There are certain truths that must be believed in order to worship. 
And second, Jesus and the woman discuss the coming Messiah. And the woman acknowledges that the Messiah that she looks for will reveal truth. And Jesus responds in verse 26, I who speak to you am he. And that's where we left off last week. Now, do you recall the purpose statement of John's gospel? It's found in John 20 and verse 31. Let me read it to you. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Well, that is precisely what this whole narrative is all about. The word Christ is the word Messiah. Through the dialogue, Jesus just skillfully guides this woman to an understanding of who he truly is, the Christ, the Messiah. And once she has embraced Jesus' true identity, she is ready then to receive the water of everlasting life. She would receive that water by believing. By believing what? That Jesus is the Christ. That's where the whole conversation is going. Now, apparently, the woman did, in fact, believe because she immediately began sharing her newfound faith and discovery of the Messiah with the people of Sychar. And this becomes apparent as the narrative just keeps rolling along. But also, as the narrative goes along, the bigotry of the disciples also becomes apparent. So with those two truths in mind, let's pick up our reading with verse 27. Verse 27. Just then, his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, come, See a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true. One sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him. Because of the woman's testimony, he told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more, more in addition to the woman, many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. 
Well, here we have Jesus dialoguing with the woman at the well. In the meantime, his disciples go into town in search of food. Now, whether all or some of them made the journey, it's impossible to say. John's very detailed record of the dialogue suggests that he actually may have stayed behind with Jesus and actually overheard the whole conversation. We don't know. But the disciples' surprise that Jesus dialogued with the woman expresses the popular prejudices of their day. Jewish rabbis believed that talking with a woman was a departure from the more important business of studying the Torah. Some rabbis believed that teaching women the Torah was entirely inappropriate. In fact, the Mishnah equates teaching one's daughter the Torah with selling her into prostitution. That Jesus would actually dialogue with this lecherous woman the way two rabbis would dialogue was really shocking. Let's remember the disciples at this point have not followed Jesus for very long. And they had much to learn about his strange behavior. And their unvoiced question is recorded at the end of verse 27. Why are you talking with her? Now observe just how artfully John intertwines two narratives in verses 27 through 42. Again, the first narrative concerns the disciples and their desire to minister to the Messiah. The second concerns the woman and her desire to witness for her newfound Messiah. They've got two stories and they're intertwined moving forward. Let's take up the story of the woman first. In verse 28, John switches from the disciples to the woman who suddenly abandons her water jar and hastens into town to tell of her new discovery. Whether she left her jar out of courtesy or haste, it's just kind of impossible to say, but perhaps both motives were involved. But the real emphasis is on her message. In verse 29, she exclaims to the residents of Sychar, Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And Obviously, she is speaking here with some hyperbole, some exaggeration, but her statement really is highly significant. It indicates that Jesus' identification of her central sin just cut right to her heart. That's what she's going to the town and talking about. She could not hide from his penetrating gaze that looked into her heart, and she freely admits it. Here's a man who told me about my past. Here's a man who told me about my sin. We do have to wonder just how much persuasion and commentary is summarized in that very brief statement in 29. It is possible that there was a lot more to this discussion, and John is just giving us a little piece of it. But either way, verse 30 relates the result. Here's what happened. When they heard the woman, they went out of the town and were coming to him. And friends, isn't it interesting whom the Lord often chooses as his chief evangelist? I'm reminded in reading this dialogue of Mary Magdalene, a star witnessed the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. What do you know about Mary Magdalene? Actually, did you know that she is mentioned 12 times in the Gospels more than most of the apostles? 
Mark and Luke's Gospels tell us that she had formerly been possessed by seven demons. Would you be skeptical of the testimony of an ex-convict? Would you call him in as your star witness? Well, how about somebody who was possessed by demons? Here's a woman who was probably involved in the occult, maybe a witch, a sorceress, a necromancer, a demoniac. And this is the woman Jesus chooses as a witness to the resurrection. It's really just extraordinary to think of this woman with this dubious reputation just being summoned as such an important witness. Every year in my apologetics course, I'm reminded of Peter's view of the apologist. In 1 Peter 3 and verse 15, the Apostle Paul tells us to be ready to give an answer to every man. But critically in the context, he says nothing about our intellectual pride or our graduate degrees or our skill in argumentation. Rather, he emphasizes the believer's humility of lifestyle. And he emphasizes that we may even suffer with Christ. And then he speaks of a believing woman winning her unbelieving husband to Christ through her meekness, through her godly lifestyle. The Christian who styles himself a great philosopher and he's always wanting a fight and a debate, that kind of person very often can be an obstacle to someone coming to faith in Christ. The fact is, some of the most effective evangelists are joyful new believers who just suddenly discovered a solution for their sins. Come, here's a man who told me everything I did. That's what she said. He told me about my sin. I think some of the least effective evangelists are believers who spend all their time preparing apologetic responses but never get around to talking with anybody about their faith. Now, let's just be really frank. Apologetics can bring people around to verse 15. And I really emphasized verse 15 last week. Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Okay? We can get you that far. It's not difficult to get people to, you know, buy into something that's good for them. But the heart of the evangelist goes beyond verse 15 to verse 16. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. Jesus knew all about her failed marriages. And Jesus is essentially saying, let's just deal with your sin. And apparently, again, the woman just let the Lord deal with her sin. She does indeed become a true convert, not a convert to the prosperity gospel. And how do we know? Well, again, look at verse 29. And notice what she does not say. She does not say, come see a man who told me about living water. Isn't that interesting? She doesn't say, oh, I found the source of living water, although Jesus is that source. But that's what attracted her initially back in verse 15, right? But notice what she emphasized in verse 29. He told me all that I ever did. He told me what to do about my sin. When a person confesses that the Lord has dealt with his or her sin, then you know a change has occurred. That's crucial. 
The night before I began working on the sermon, I heard the testimony from a belie- of a believer who grew up in an overtly Christian context. But he said, I, just, I didn't become a true believer until the Lord just really dealt with my sin. I, just, I grew up in Christianity, but there came that moment that I allowed the Lord to just deal with my sin. And that really is the message this woman has for the town. Here's a man who can just expose everything about you. I'll come to him. Now, friends, this issue of presenting Jesus as a Savior from our sins, I think, is a major concern in contemporary Christianity. And that's why I emphasized it last week as well as this week. There are any number of apologetics ministries and Christian worldview platforms and venues for Christian education and endless resources, endless resources, that really do a spectacular job of clarifying, defending, and articulating the Christian view of the world. And all that is good so far as it goes. But as disciple-makers for Christ, we are not merely in the business of winning arguments, creating intrigue, creating wonder. We really have to deal with people's sin. I'm reminded of the spectacular fall of Rabbi Zacharias. Zacharias presented arguments from for Christianity with eloquence and with passion. His presentations drew thousands. I came down here to Clemson to hear him speak. But something apparently wasn't quite right. Has the Lord really dealt with your sin? Have you confessed it? Are you willing to point people to Jesus as a solution? For their sin? Or are you hiding your own sin behind a kind of sophisticated apologetic argument? That actually happens. Let's think about the prosperity of gospel again. I mentioned this last week. We talked about Norman Vincent Peale. Today's leading prosperity gospel preacher is Joel Osteen. In his bestseller, Your Best Life Now, He preaches a false gospel to millions of Americans whose citizenship in a prosperous country has made them susceptible, very susceptible to very bad theology. I recently had a conversation with a young lady whose whole church experience consists of watching Joel Osteen on television with her parents. And her parents are addicted to wealth. They say they're believers, but I doubt it. Osteen opens his book with a story about a man on vacation in Hawaii. He and his wife pull over on the side of the road and admire this beautiful, majestic house set up high on a hill, stunning view of the ocean. And the man says to his wife, I can't imagine living in a place like that. To which Osteen says, as long as you can't imagine, as long as you can't see it, then it is not going to happen for you. The man correctly realized that his own thoughts and attitudes were condemning him to mediocrity. He determined then and there to start believing better of himself and believing better of God. It's the same way with us. We have to conceive it on the inside before we're ever going to receive it on the outside. But friends, what is on the inside? For Osteen, as for millions of Americans, God is just sort of genie in the bottle who's just waiting to make all of your dreams come true. Osteen's message just stops right there at verse 15. Here's the water of prosperity. 
But again, Jesus just turns a searchlight on the heart. He looks to the inside. Go, call your husband and come here. And the woman understood. Verse 29, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? Not, come, see a man who's going to give me a house in Hawaii. No, come, see a man who dealt with my sin. Now, just skip down to verse 39 and notice the result of the woman's true evangelism. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. The woman's testimony clearly drove a whole crowd out of the town to find Jesus. And again, the words that provoked them were her confession. He told me what I did. That's what provoked them. She had a sin problem, and so did they. So they went looking for the solution to their sin. And friends, this really is how true evangelism works. It ultimately has to point beyond ourselves to Christ. It has to point to Christ as the Savior of the world. Now, in verses 31 through 38, our attention is drawn back to the disciples. And here we have that second narrative. And indeed, they have an ambition to serve the Messiah. Jesus, being weird from his journey, had stopped at the well for water. But he was equally in need for food. And the disciples, having secured food from the village, pressed upon him his need for nourishment. So in verse 31, they say, Rabbi, eat. But Jesus refuses. And his refusal was designed to illustrate a point. There really is an interesting parallel in this section and the preceding. Just as the woman was initially confused by Jesus' analogy from water, so the disciples are now confused by his analogy from food. Both allowed a very literal understanding of water and food to disrupt the deeper meaning that Jesus was after. In verses 32 and 3, we read, But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? And look at the parallel back in verse 11. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Well, the disciples assume that Jesus must have gotten some literal food somewhere. And the woman assumed that Jesus is talking about literal water drawn up from the well. But Jesus is not actually talking about literal water or literal food. His words have much deeper significance. What sort of food is Jesus after? Verse 34, Jesus said to them, My food, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. In other words, what satisfies and nourishes and feeds Jesus most 
is to do the Father's will. Jesus is almost certainly echoing the words of Deuteronomy 8 and verse 3 where Moses said, And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Of the Lord. That's the richer food. That's the food that the disciples did not understand, to do the will of the Lord. And of course, that passage is cited by Jesus at his temptation. Life is more than physical food. Life is more than satisfying your physical appetites. Food is, of course, absolutely essential to human survival. And in fact, humans, when they're just facing a crisis of food, can hardly think about anything else. If you don't have food, nothing else matters. But Moses says physical food is not enough. We need to live by God's words. And who illustrates this better than any other human being who has ever lived? Christ, of course, at his temptation. And I have asked you on a previous occasion, I think more than once, to just try to picture Christ in the wilderness of temptation can you get that image in your mind once again? Think of Christ like a POW or a Holocaust victim. He's on the verge of starvation. In fact, Stephen Chen sent something to me recently about what happens when the body begins to cannibalize itself. What must have happened to Jesus' body? I should, I should share that with the rest of you. It's really interesting. Jesus' knobby limbs begin to dangle in their sockets. His eyes sink backwards in his skull. His body eats away at the muscle tissue. His ribs protrude through this thin veil of skin, covered with putrid sores. In starvation, the body begins eating itself. So here is Jesus, and he's just wasting away in that burning Judean wilderness. It looks like the surface of the moon. Nothing grows out there. Just, there's rocks out there that are just bleached white under this boiling sun. And Jesus undergoes this trial that is as great as any human being has ever experienced. And all the while, the tempter just keeps on coming. The, Luke, uh, the Greek in Luke is emphatic. He comes on day one and day two and day three. He just keeps on assaulting Christ. Day 37, day 38, day 39, he just keeps on coming. And now it's day 40, and the tempter comes a final time, and the temptation is identical to the temptation of Adam, right? Eat. There's nothing wrong with taking a stone and turning it into bread. He turned water into wine. Nothing wrong with that, unless it's the Father's will for you to truly experience humanity. The temptation concern Christ's fulfillment of God's plan to truly sympathize with human suffering, to understand our frailty, and to succeed at his weakest, where Adam failed at his strongest. The temptation was, can man live by bread alone, or does he need every word that comes from the mouth of God? And Jesus' answer is, every word of God matters. That's what I hunger for. 
Now, friends, would you take that whole scene from the temptation and import it right back into verse 34? Get that scene in your mind and bring it right into verse 34. Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. What's most important to Jesus? To obey the word of God, to fulfill his will. Jesus is more concerned to obey the Father than to satisfy even his own physical hunger. When Jesus said the Beatitudes, blessed are those who hunger and who thirst after righteousness, this is the kind of radical life that Jesus is calling for, prioritizing God's commands over life itself, prioritizing the Great Commission over your physical needs. Now, we all know that at the end of the Gospels, the Great Commission is coming. But along the way, what Jesus is doing is he is discipling his disciples to prepare them for that coming Great Commission. And this is one of those stories that really ultimately is going to help those disciples understand the commission when it comes. At this point, clearly the disciples are ill-equipped. And it's clear from reading the context that they're full of chauvinism and racial prejudice. They marvel that Jesus would even talk with this Samaritan woman. She's not one of us. She's a woman and she's from another country over here, another ethnicity over here. She doesn't belong to us. And just as Jesus had to deal with the woman's sin, so Jesus also deals with the disciples' sin as he prepares them for the Great Commission. So really you have two things going on here. You have him evangelizing the woman of Samaria, but along the way he's also teaching his disciples how to become evangelists. That really is what this narrative is all about. I remember growing up, my dad would take us witnessing up and down the street, and he would take me along and show you, this is how you do it, right? Well, that's, that's a great idea. Go out witnessing and bring somebody along and show them how to do it. That's what Jesus is doing here, showing the disciples also how to engage people. So look at this, friends. Again, Jesus just refuses their gift of food. And he's doing so to make a dramatic point. And you have to understand, this is, this is very offensive, potentially very offensive in a first century culture where they didn't have the plethora of food options that we have today. We got so much food. When somebody says, I'm not hungry, no big deal, right? We got so much food, all right? But food was much scarcer in those days. When somebody went to all the effort to go into town and bring you back food, of course you took it. You're hungry. And Jesus just says, no. What's going on here? Well, keep reading. Verse 35. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Well, what fields? The fields of food or souls? Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Friends, this certainly is among the most famous passages in the Bible regarding the Christian's missionary obligation. This passage is preached hundreds of times, I would probably every year, at missions conferences all over the country. This passage has inspired thousands of missionaries to just set their sights on foreign fields. 
It really is a delightful passage. There's something more important than even your physical food, those potential converts for Christ. But let's observe two things about this passage. First of all, these were Samaritan fields. And Jesus is deliberately dealing with the disciples' racial bias. He's in Samaria. Lift up your eyes and look. These people that you despise, look again. Now it is true in the words of Jesus at the end of verse 22, for salvation is from the Jews, but don't confuse from with for. That's where the disciples got tripped up. Salvation is from the Jews, but who is it for? Salvation comes from the Jews because the Messiah comes from the Jews. But salvation is not exclusively for the Jews. Look all around you. And don't procrastinate saying the harvest will come in the future. Here's a Samaritan woman and she's already ready for harvest. And second, Jesus is saying that sometimes evangelism happens very quickly. True conversion sometimes happens very quickly. Of course, we all know that sown seed takes time to go into the soil and to germinate and to grow through water and nutrition and sunlight. And finally, there is a harvest to come. That's the norm. It takes time. And I don't deny for a minute that sometimes it really takes a long time to bring someone to Christ. William Carey spent some six years in India before he saw his first convert. Paul spoke of sowing seeds and others watering those seeds and eventually the harvest comes. That's all true. But actually, that's not the point that Jesus is making here. Verse 36 speaks of actually a rapid harvest. In fact, it happens so rapidly that both the sower, get this, the sower and the reaper rejoice together. They rejoice together because their labors are virtually simultaneous. Sometimes it happens really, really quickly. The sowing is followed almost immediately by conversions. It doesn't always happen, but it does happen. Several years ago, I was flying across the country, sat down next to a young man, shared my faith with him, and uh, he was, it seemed to me very eager to believe, but he just stumbled at the cross. But within two weeks, he ran into some other Christians down in Florida and he put his faith in Christ and he emailed me right away and he said, I put my faith in Christ. Well, two weeks, that's pretty good. It doesn't always happen that way. But that was a moment for me where it was like the sower and the reaper could rejoice together, could rejoice together. And so, friends, maybe those opportunities are out there. Maybe there's people that are out there and they, just, they, they, they need the gospel today. They need it right now. What are we waiting for? Lift up your eyes. And look at those fields. Now, in conclusion, I just want to make a single suggestion. And maybe this is just a critique of my own prayer life. Christians often will pray for opportunities for evangelism. And as I've thought through that, and I've, also, I've prayed that as well, I have to confess I really no longer know what that means. It's almost like we're praying for this sort of perfect scenario to just sort of fall out of the sky and land right there and, okay, I'll witness to you and you get saved, right? Well, 
That's lovely, but it doesn't really happen. All right? Sometimes it happens quickly, yes, but there's still labor involved. Sometimes I think that praying for opportunities is nothing more than an excuse for not witnessing. As if we're just waiting for that golden moment to come. Well, sometimes it does take six years, and sometimes it does take two weeks, but either way, there is work involved. The field out there is ripe for harvest, but what does that mean you have to do? You've got to go engage. You've got to go engage. Jesus is saying to these disciples, lift up your eyes, look at that harvest out there, now go to work. It's right there. The opportunity is right there. You can't even see it. It's right in front of you. You can't even see it. So I wonder whether we should take that prayer for opportunities and adjust that prayer. How about this? Lord, help me to see the opportunities that are right in front of me. Lord, help me to take advantage of that opportunity that's sitting in the cubicle next to me at work. It's just right, he's right there. She's right there. Lord, right across the street, this neighbor does not have Christ. Oh, that's the field that I need to labor in. I think sometimes that we are so busy serving the Messiah that we miss the more important mission of the Messiah that's all around us. We can be so busy serving around the church and having our meals and getting everything just right that we fail to evangelize anybody. It's really wonderful to bring our food to Jesus. It's wonderful to care for the church and to serve the body of Christ and to get involved. I have no problem with that. But sometimes I wonder if we do everything but what's most important. What if we had a great big church banquet, lots of good food, we have some great cooks around here, and Jesus showed up at our banquet and refused to eat? What would Jesus say if he found a church full of busy people who ignored the harvest all around them? He would say, look, I don't need your food. I have food to eat that you don't know about. And we'd all be wondering, well, who fed Jesus? And we totally missed the point. And Jesus would just say to us, look at the needs of lost people all around you. That's my food. That's what I care about. That's what really satisfies me most. Shall we pray together? Father, we thank you for Christ. We thank you for his words of encouragement. And I pray, Lord, that as we look at the world around us, that the opportunities that are there, that we would take advantage of them. Just set aside some time in our busy schedules and just talk to the people who are right there, right there in front of us. We ask it for Christ's sake. Amen. I woke up Thursday morning and was just really praying and thinking through this pavilion project that we've been thinking about and talking about. And uh, really just a little bit anxious about it. And I thought, should I say anything to the church or not? I've been anxious about this for a long time. Really praying about it and just seeking the Lord's mind. And just really, really wanted a passage of scripture to help guide my own thinking when it comes to this project. And I have to say up until Thursday morning, there was just, it, was, it was like blank. It was like a blank slate. There was just nothing there. And I was just asking the Lord, can you just, can you just help me through your word to really know how I'm supposed to vote? Because I love to have a pavilion out there. I think it'd be fantastic. But how am I really supposed to vote about this? Can you give me some guidance from your word? 
And I woke up Thursday morning, and I was looking over John chapter 4, and I was tinkering with the sermon, and all of a sudden it just hit me. The passage was staring me in the face. It's right there. It's John 4. It's John 4. And I just imagined us having this beautiful pavilion out here and having a nice meal together, really enjoying it, and Jesus shows up. And Jesus says, I don't want any of your food. And we're saying, why do we build this thing? Why do we build this thing? That really, really bothered me. Now, I think that a pavilion could be put to good use. I think that we could really use it to enhance our properties. I think that we could use it to have meals. I think that our church would really, really enjoy it. But I think we really, really need to give some real attention to how we're going to use this for evangelistic purposes. And I think if we have some real you know, evangelistic intention behind this for ministering to our community, for enhancing VBS, for enhancing uh, international ministry, for maybe growing our college ministry and doing cross-impact or any variety of things, doing things for the neighborhood out there, uh, CCA, I mean, CCA is a major part of what we're trying to do here in evangelizing children, discipling children, and bringing them to Christ, and CCA would love to have a pavilion out there. All right, I, this, this, is, this is where my thoughts went. Lord, how am I really thinking about this thing? Am I really thinking very intentionally about how this building, all right, could be used in this community, all right, to advance the gospel where the fields are widened to harvest around us? Is that, is that really our intention? Okay, now I didn't say anything to the elders or deacons except for Barry. I called Barry this week and I said, Barry, I, I don't know whether to say anything Sunday morning. I just got his advice because we've been talking through this a lot. And I said, I'm going to go ahead and do it. All right, so I, I'm saying all this because I just really wanted a passage to sort of guide me in my own thinking, a passage that I could really pray through as I'm trying to think you know, about, about giving to this project and about voting for this project. And uh, this passage just came to me as I was just staring at it Sunday, uh, Thursday morning, and I just thought, you know, in the providence of God, this is the passage that we've... This wasn't manipulated. It's just not manipulated at all. This, in the providence of God, is a passage that we have come to Sunday morning, all right, as we're in the middle of thinking about this pavilion. And so let me just suggest that maybe this be a passage that really helps us all think through this project and whether it be of the Lord's mind, because in the end, what we really want to know is what is the Lord's mind, all right? What I want to know from you is what do you think the Lord wants us to do? Not what do you want to do. I really don't, can I say it this way? I really don't care what you want, all right? <laughs> and you shouldn't care what I want, all right? I actually want a pavilion, okay? I actually want a pavilion. I'd love to have it out there. I think it'd be beautiful, all right? But you shouldn't care about what I want, all right? You should care, okay, that Brent Cook, the pastor of University Baptist Church, is actively seeking the Lord's mind, and praying about this and seeking his mind. And I should care that you're doing the same thing, all right? And I, I should really be listening to what the Lord is teaching you and what you're praying about. Okay, does that make sense? So I, I want to do sort of an extended application of the sermon. Uh, we, last week, we put some little cards in the bulletin and uh, asked you to check those off. If you're interested in moving forward with this, we got a lot of yeses, some really good responses, so we're glad for that. 
We had some questions that come in, uh, that came in also that we want to look at, we want to address. And uh, if you weren't here last week, you didn't get a chance to fill out that card, we put a stack of them out here on the table out there. We're asking you just to fill that out, and if you have any questions at all, write those questions out and then drop them in the Connect card boxes. And then our men will take a look at these and uh, pray about these and then come back to you and um, just really try to know the Lord's mind through all this. Okay, now, having said that, okay, I don't want to get all of our attention diverted to the pavilion at this point, because the fact is, before that pavilion ever gets built, there are going to be people that you run into that need the gospel. So don't wait in the pavilion to get the gospel to people, all right? That's, that's really the application of the sermon, is there are needs now. There are needs now. We don't, we don't say, oh, we'll have a great VBS once we get the pavilion built. Well, we're not going to have a VBS next month. I mean, I'm sorry, we're not going to have a pavilion next month. But let's get involved in VBS, all right? Let's get involved in VBS. The fields are wide in the harvest right now.